This morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scripture to the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter number three. Colossians three, this morning, verses nine through 17. Colossians three, verses nine through 17. Although we can't always judge a book by its cover, there is something that we can learn about a person by looking at their outward appearance. For example, if you were to see a man wearing brown clothes and a brown hat, driving a big brown truck full of brown boxes, you may conclude that it is, yes, it is Mr. Brown, the UPS man. If you were to see a man wearing a black and white striped jumpsuit with a number stenciled on his back, you might discern that he is an inmate or a prisoner. If you see him walking down the street, he may have just escaped from jail. Athletes wear uniforms to identify themselves as part of a team. Hunters wear camouflage. Doctors wear lab coats. You see, we dress according to our identity and according to our activity, according to our identity, so that when people see us, they can know something about us, and according to our activity, so that we can best do the task that we are called to do. And so whether we like it or not, man does look on the outward appearance. And in our scripture text this morning, the Apostle Paul uses the same motif I've written there at the top of your notes to instruct us to dress according to our new identity. We are to throw off the old garments, the old sinful lifestyle, verses five through eight, our study last week, and we are to put on the garments of the new man. And so from Colossians three, verses nine through 17, I prepared a message titled, The New Man with a New Look. Let me pause for prayer. And then we'll look at the scripture. Oh God in heaven above, we humbly bow our heads and our hearts before you in Jesus' name, so thankful for your sovereignty, for your providence, for your control over the affairs of man. God, many times there are hard circumstances in our lives, but we know that you are good, always good, and we're so thankful for that. God, this morning now we turn our attention to this portion of scripture. We ask that your spirit might instruct us and teach us, convict us as necessary. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are before me here in this room or listening to this recording that that you would help us to dress like and live like and act like and sound like our risen life in Jesus Christ in whose name I pray, amen. Last week we asked and answered two different questions. We asked the why, the what question and we asked the why questions. The what, what are we to do? We're to mortify the sins of the flesh. Why are we to do that? Because God judges sin and sin was part of our previous life. And so this morning now, after the what and after the why questions comes the how question. In Colossians 3, beginning in verse number nine, how, verse number nine, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. Upon salvation, we become a new man. 
old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Positionally, we are a new work of creation. However, practically, we need to evidence that reality. That's number one. We should evidence our new position. Evidence our new position. Now, the picture of putting off and putting on of a garment was common in the ancient world, and it represented the transformation of one's identification and association. The problem was, for the Colossian believers in the first century, and for the New Testament believer today, the the problem is that sometimes we fail to evidence that change even lying to others about who we are, verse number nine. I offer you the example of of Peter. I'm not exactly sure when Peter was saved, but I know he must have been saved by Matthew 16, verse 16, because in Matthew 16, verse 16, he made the declaration to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that was not an academic or an intellectual conclusion, but it was the confession of a saved man. For Jesus said to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Ten chapters later, Peter was trying to regain his composure after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And three times that evening, Peter was recognized as one of Jesus' disciples. But in each case, Peter bitterly denied knowing Jesus, catch this, lying about his identity and his association with Jesus. One of the women that was confronting him that night said, but you must be one of Jesus' disciples for your your speech betrays you. You have a Galilean accent and, and I've seen you with him. And from all external evidences, the charge was, you must be a friend of Jesus. Yet what did Peter do? He lied three times, denying Jesus. He lied about his identity, even cursing and swearing. Colossians 3, verse number 9 says, don't lie. Don't deceive others. Don't confuse or cover up your new identity. But like Peter, many times we affirm our faith in Jesus Christ one day, but then we deny him later when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient on another day. You see, we dress up for Sundays, but then we wear a lie through the course of the week. I would reference 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Folks, I acknowledge that the struggle is is formidable because although we are a new man positionally, we live in the old shell practically. And we struggle. We struggle with the appetites of the old man and we combat the passions of our old flesh just like the super saint the great apostle Paul did when he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But since we have been raised with Christ, since we are a new creation, since we have been washed in the blood of the lamb, since we are sons and daughters of God, we must evidence our new position by putting off and putting on. Number two, we should experience new progress. After we evidence our new position, we should experience new progress. Now, we know that in salvation, the born-again believer who's called on the name of the Lord in faith um, has life, new life, spiritual life, eternal life, but we do not have instant or full maturity like the baby 
The baby who is born complete must still grow to maturity. And so the same is is true spiritually. There's a necessary progress in our faith. Look at verse number 10. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Man was created in the image of God. However, that, that image was marred or damaged because of the fall. So that in salvation, it is restored by the conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So this progressive maturity or this sanctification we call it is somehow linked to knowledge in verse number 10. We put on the new man who is renewed how? In knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And and so we have this matter of knowledge. I, I, I submit that first the source of this knowledge is scripture. The source of this knowledge is scripture, and, and I could give you some references here, Second Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God, here's the purpose statement, so that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I could give you 2 Peter 2 verse 2 as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. And so this knowledge in verse number 10 is sourced in the scripture. I also submit that the goal of this knowledge is sanctification. Letter B. The goal of knowledge is not knowledge. For knowledge alone puffs up, but the goal of knowledge is the renewing and the progressing in conformity to the image of the one who created us. And and we could cite many other scriptures as well, but here's the key. You will experience progress in your life, growth in your Christian life as you encounter the knowledge of God through the scripture. As I look back over the course of my life, I can recognize seasons of growth spiritually for me during intense times of Bible intake in my life. Maybe it was a summer Bible camp or maybe it was a um, a special series of of teaching and preaching. Maybe it was personal Bible reading and and study. But consider this, during the, the years following Jesus Christ ascension and return to heaven, the Christian church exploded exponentially there in the first century. And people grew and they were so passionate about uh, the gospel and, and their Lord Jesus that they were willing to die for their faith. And I've often wondered what it would have been like to live in that day. I've often longed to, to have that same experience of the progress in, in our day But I have a theory as to why that may have been, in part, the case. Acts chapter 2 says that the believers in the city of Jerusalem met daily, daily, to hear the apostles' doctrine, their teaching, and to pray. Later in Acts 17, the believers in Berea searched the scriptures daily, And could it be that their quick and powerful progress was because of their saturation in the scriptures? And I believe they were being renewed in knowledge, knowledge sourced in the scripture, and they were growing and they were progressing spiritually because of that. And yet we expect progress in our Christian lives after only hearing a 29-minute sermon once a week, 
Really, folks? That's not gonna happen. We need so much more of God's word to sanctify us and to grow us. We should evidence our new position. We should experience new progress through the knowledge of the scripture. Number three, we should enjoy our new partnership. Our new partnership. And for the first century Colossian believers, verse 11 now is a radical truth. Colossians 3, verse number 11. Where there is neither Greek, let me back up to the end of verse number 10. We're going to be renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, verse 11, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And here Paul cites four categories of division that existed in in the first century, but in Christ, these divisions are abolished. New partnerships are established because Christ is all in all. First, letter A, there's a, a new racial partnership, the Greek and the Jew. The Greek and the Jew had nothing to do with each other. They were like cats and dogs. They were like oil and water. They were like Vikings fans and Packer fans, you see. There was a division there. Jewish people could not enter a Gentile house. And and Jewish people would not eat a meal cooked by Gentiles, nor buy meat prepared by Gentile butchers. And when they returned back to Israel after traveling, they would show their disdain for the Gentiles by shaking the Gentile dust off of their, their clothes and their sandals. But in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Not only a new racial partnership, a new religious partnership. You see it there in verse number 11, circumcised and uncircumcised. Those who adopted Judaism were circumcised as a sign of their covenant connection. Those who were not circumcised were outside of the covenant community. But we've learned about the Judaizers who demanded that one become circumcised before becoming a Christian. But in Colossians 2, Paul already put that issue to rest. We need the circumcision of the heart, he calls it, in chapter 2, verse 11. Circumcision no longer matters, physical circumcision. There's a new religious partnership. Let us see, there's a new cultural partnership. There in verse 11, he cites the the barbarians and the Scythians. They were uncultured people groups. They were third world, if, you, if, if you'd like. They were, the, the, the barbarian, that's an onomatopoeia word. It, it sounds like what it says, barbarian, bar, 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 describes their speech. They stammered. They were very unarticulate. They were rednecks. They were uneducated. They were backwoods. They were uh, barbarians. The Scythians They were nomadic and they were warlike people. And if you'll allow a a moment of crudeness, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote this of the Scythians. They would drink the blood of the first enemies they killed in battle and made napkins of their scalps and drinking bowls of their skulls. They were filthy people who never washed with water. The Jewish historian Josephus would later write of the Scythians, the Scythians delighted in murdering people and were little better than wild beasts. And so so here Paul is suggesting a new partnership, that they should enjoy a new partnership. How does that work? Because the Colossian believers could accept these people in Christ. To partner with them? How is that possible? Because in Christ, Christ is all in all. Letter D, there's a new social partnership. That's there at the end of 
verse number 11, the slave and the freeman. Aristotle described slaves as living tools, but now slaves and freemen were brothers in Christ because they were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, and Paul wrote to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. And so, why should we enjoy these new partnerships? Because, because we like Everyone? No. The reality is we don't like everyone. We discriminate in our hearts. But because of Jesus Christ, he is all in all, the end of verse number 11. Things are different now because of Jesus Christ. Number four, we should exercise new practices. Since you have died with Christ, since you have been raised with Christ, since you are a new creature in Christ, a new man, you put off the old, you put on the new, you practice or exercise uh, new practices. And um, these qualities or or practices here um, are the outward manifestation of an inward transformation. I I hope you understand the, the motif that we're working with here. And uh, these new practices are listed now in verses 12 through 14. But never mind your notes. I don't have these as sub-sub points in your notes. I want you to, to look at the scripture text alone and understand these new practices that we must exercise. Verse 12 says, as the elect of God, verse 12, that's our position, holy and beloved, that's our description, put on. This is the exercise of new practices put on, and let me just tick through these very quickly, tender mercies or or hearts of compassion. You see it there in verse 12. Our our culture accuses Christians of being the most unloving, bigoted, narrow-minded, right-wing, antiquated, intolerant people because of our convictions regarding truth. And without surrendering our biblical convictions, we should also be known as the most tender, compassionate, caring people because of Christ in us. There's tender mercies, hearts of compassion. How about their number two, kindness? You see it there. A kind person is, is as concerned about the other as he is for himself. Kindness was epitomized with the Good Samaritan. We're familiar with that. There's humility. Now in ancient classical Greek, humility was always a negative matter, negative connotation. But it wasn't until Jesus came that humility became a virtue. Then there's gentleness or meekness. You see it there. This is, this is not weakness. It's, it's power under control, strength under control. And a meek man is willing to suffer another's burdens with him. Meekness is a fruit of the spirit that's listed in Galatians 5. Next, my Bible, it, it reads um, long-suffering, the end of verse 12. Maybe yours reads patience, the end of verse 12. All right, this is a difficult one. Let me, uh, let me illustrate in this way. I remember years ago that our cat, actually my wife's cat, you see, my wife's cat um, chewed through my laptop computer cord. And I was able to work some magic with a little bit of electrical tape and repair that computer cord and get it working again. But would you believe it, the cat 
chewed through the computer cord a second time. And this time, the cord was a complete loss, and I had to make a special trip to an Apple store. We were living north of the cities at the time, and it was a long drive. I had to make a special trip to purchase a new AC adapter um, that we couldn't afford, by the way, at the time. And so I, I made that trip, and on the way back from my errand, my car started doing funny things. When I used my blinker, my radio would turn off. And if I adjusted the heat, my radio would come back on. My cruise control wouldn't hold, and all the idiot lights and the gauges were doing abnormal things. And needless to say, my car died that day. But no problem. I have roadside assistance. So I called AAA, and they told me that it would take two hours, the lady told me on the phone, because all the tow trucks were out. Ruined my day. You understand? All because of the cats. <laughs> you might say, you know, Pastor, you, you really have some issues you need to work through with, with animals or pets. It's not that I don't like animals. I like animals, but it seems to me that God's means of sanctification in my life always is connected to an animal, to our pets. And I have to put up with, I mean, I'm sorry, I have to put on patience and long-suffering, right? Never mind the animals or the circumstances of our lives. How about one another? You see, at the beginning of verse 13, Paul is continuing his grocery list of these practices that we must put on, and he goes directly from long-suffering or patience at the end of verse 12 into bearing with one another. It means to endure for the sake of the other. And the Corinthians failed miserably in in this area. If you can think of the Corinthian church, they were taking each other to court in 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul says, why don't you rather just be wronged rather than um, pursue legal action? Allow yourself to be defrauded. Take the loss. Bear with one another. It's bearing with one another. Next, in verse 13, forgiving one another. Of course, that's qualified by the forgiveness we've received from Jesus Christ. And Christ's forgiveness was ultimate. It was infinite. There were no strings attached. There were no conditions to be met. There were no exceptions. Full forgiveness. What's next? I see there in verse number 14, but above all these things, put on what? On love. That's another difficult one. And the motif of putting on clothing, love is that belt that holds it all together. Of course, the, the Corinthians had a love problem, and I, I know we're not studying the Corinthians, we're studying the Colossians, but my mind goes to the Corinthian church, and Paul wrote an entire chapter on, on love. And these are the new practices that we need to exercise. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christ one? It looks like verses 12, 13, and 14. So dress up. Put on the attire of one who's a follower of Jesus Christ. Number five, we should should establish new priorities. There are three new priorities of the new man. And this is the finishing touch of the new look, if you'll allow. It's the ultimate makeover. First is the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ, and I would point you to verse 15, and let, your, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be 
thankful. And because the believer has been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are then called to make this a priority and be ruled by it. Do you see it there in verse 15? To be ruled. What does it mean that the peace of God or the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts? It was in the Greek games, the ancient Greek games, that there were judges. We would call them umpires today or referees today. And they would reject the contestants who were not qualified and those who were disqualified when breaking the rules. And so they would govern or they would rule the sporting event. And in the same way, the peace of God or the peace of Christ ought to govern and guide believers in every circumstance of our life. Warren Wearsby explains it this way. He says, the peace of God is our umpire It's our referee, it's our judge. When we obey the will of God, we will have peace, we will have his peace within. When we step out of his will, even unintentionally, we lose his peace. And this is a difficult thing for us because at times Satan can give us a pseudo-peace. Like Jonah, remember Jonah? He ran from the presence of the Lord, but yet was able to fall asleep in the boat. Real peace is described in Philippians 4. We read it earlier. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, you can't even explain it, will guard your mind and your heart through Christ Jesus. So every decision, every purchase, every move in life ought to be preceded by and prioritized by the ruling peace of God in your life. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is, letter B, the the word of Christ, the word of Christ. And the scripture ought to take residence in our lives and establishing this priority for your Christian walk, your Christian life, as as a new man, prioritize the word of Christ resulting in teaching and admonishing one another. And it, I, I think it's just even a spontaneous ministry of the word among one another. And, and it, it's not just producing information, but it's producing emotion. It generates music. You see it there. And the Psalms were taken from the Old Testament songbook, the Psalms. Hymns were creeds and confessions and declarations of God that were recited then put to music. The spiritual songs emphasized testimony, expressions of what God had done Verse number 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We should prioritize the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and I offer you number three, letter C, the name of Christ. That is to exalt the name of Christ. Everything that we do, everything that we say is done in the name and for the name and by the name and because of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The new man with a new look. Let me conclude with, in in this way, there there have been times when maybe you've been at a ball game or in a shopping mall or an airport, maybe at the state fair, maybe you're driving down the road and you think you see somebody that you recognize. And you say to your spouse, you say, hey, look look there, is that so-and-so? That looks like so-and-so. And your spouse might say, ah, I'm not sure. Wait till he turns around so I can get a better look. 
And perhaps in that circumstance, the, the man, the woman turns around and you can positively ID the one or perhaps you conclude, no, that's not who you think it is. Man looks on the outward appearance. When man sees you, either when the world sees you or the church sees you, can they make a positive identification of who you are? I think he's a believer. I think he's a Christ one. I think he's been born again. But I can't quite be sure. Wait till he turns around. Wait till I can get a better look. May we be men and women of God who have put off the old and put on the new so that the world can look at us and positively identify us as new men with a new look. May it not be that anybody ever has to do a double take to identify us. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would help us to put off and to put on to live our new identity and our new activity. God, I pray that you would help us toward this end in Jesus' name, amen.